You're very welcome back to On The Record. Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock today. Time for this. of not exactly high quality audio was the reality of pirate broadcasting from Derry in 1968 look lots of coverage during the week particularly towards the latter end of the week um, of the 50th anniversary of what some are calling the beginning of the Troubles 5th of October 68 big civil rights demonstration in Derry it was attacked around Duke Street there was rioting and then this crisis that just rapidly escalated and one interesting aspect of it was Radio Free Derry and that was the Eamon McCann the well known voice of Eamon McCann we heard there uh, who broadcast on Radio Free Derry which was an attempt by the civil rights movement to take control of the airwaves as well as the streets Donald Fallon is here to explain all Donald how are you? Good good to be here Tired. Up, up since very very early this morning watching uh, McGregor watching Conor McGregor a fellow graduate of Colosh de Cushliffa but it wasn't to be today uh, alright ok yourself and the other <laughs> alumni then will be all uh, disappointed uh, look uh, get, getting back to matters historical um, this this date first of all actually because the 5th of October 68 like, is that an agreed date as in bang start well, it, of the it depends on, on the kind of historian that you are I mean some argue that the troubles begin with the first firing of a shot in anger and some argue they begin with the first chucking of the stone but there was tension in in, in the north of Ireland that was building before October 1968 and there were things that erupted in 1969. So many Republicans will say that the you know the troubles began in 69 and, and the mural in West Belfast proclaims the people arose in 69, they can do so again at any time. But for the civil rights movement, it's 68 and, and the 5th of October 1968 is the broadly accepted date that the tragic saga of the Irish troubles began. And certainly, you know, it was a catalyst moment, it was a crisis moment and the behaviour of the police that day was denounced famously by Jerry Fitt MP who was injured as stormtrooper tactics at their very worst. It was a disastrous handing, wasn't it? And even the British had to admit this early on that what happened on the streets of Derry was, was just totally out of hand. Uh, the Cameron Report of 1969 famously proclaimed that the police handling of the demonstration in Londonderry on the 5th of October was in certain material respects ill-coordinated and inept. There was use of unnecessary and ill-controlled force in the dispersal of the demonstrators, only a minority of whom acted in a disorderly and violent manner. So right from the horse's mouth, the acknowledgement that the actions that day were wrong. Uh, Pickin 68 as well has a nice kind of global synchronicity it to it, it, doesn't does. it? And I mean, we heard a lot this year. We even did a slot earlier on in, in the year on, on May 1968 and what happened in Paris. Uh, and the civil rights movement, you know, it didn't come from nowhere, but it had international influences, of course, and people liked the idea of the big 1968, you know, the year of global revolt. And in many ways, it was a year of global revolt, you know, from, from Southern America to Parisian universities. Like, if you were young in 1968, and if you were a student in 1968, you were angry. But in Derry, I mean, they had some of the... The, 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 the characteristics of the global 1968, you know, the same style of posters mm. as you saw on the streets of Paris. Uh, we shall overcome, you know, the anthem that was being sung in, in the southern US states was sung as well. But the catalyst was local. You know, it was housing issues, economic inequalities, uh, gerrymandering. Yeah. I mean, Derry was a nationalist city 
with an overwhelmingly unionist council that couldn't yeah. continue forever. There were glass ceilings that Catholics just were not breaking through. So, yeah, the global 1968 is important, but I think there's an element of reading history backwards in that. And we love the idea of 68 in Paris and all of that, but this was very local too. Uh, tell us more then about the day, about uh, Derry that day in 68. I think one reason, one reason we know so much about that day is that it was captured. And that's an interesting t- dimension of the beginning of the Troubles, that there's this massive interest in the civil rights movement from the South. So the sheer brutality of it is not only shocking, but it's captured. And an awful lot of credit is due to an RTE cameraman, Gay O'Brien, and a sound recorder called Eamon Hayes, because they went over the border and they captured what you could only call the worst excesses of tuggery. And their story received some attention, deservedly so, this week. Uh, on Friday, Hayes was interviewed on Morning Ireland. And what he said was interesting. He said it was frightful because we were a standard news crew covering normal events. But to be subjected to this extreme violence and to be in the middle of it was quite an experience. I believe that perhaps it changed the course of history and exposed a lot of wrongdoings and sectarian bitterness. And that footage had an impact in houses and homes around Ireland. And for for the lads getting that coverage across the border, I imagine. It's not like today we just upload it onto the cloud and it's it's beamed out from a Dublin office. You have to get that hard copy back into the south. Uh, So before or it could be beamed into homes across the Republic. It had to make its way into the Republic. Uh, and, you know, it woke people up to the realities of what was happening in the North at that time. And the people that you're looking at on, on that footage, I mean, Jerry Fitt was from the Republican Labour Party, later a founder of the SDLP. I mean, he's, he's not exactly a, a separatist hardliner. You know, he's not a man that's associated with the IRA or anything like it. Later on, Republicans often say, Fitt's a Brit. You know, they don't like him because they mm. see him as too moderate. Uh, and he's injured. And there's a number of MPs from the Westminster Parliament that are sympathetic to the civil rights movement that are there that day. And they're injured. So the civil rights movement in Derry had built really from the bottom up. And I suppose the demographics of the city meant that inevitably there was going to be a civil rights movement in that town. Bob Purdy wrote, Derry was the crucible of the civil rights movement. It was of enormous symbolic importance as the second city of Northern Ireland, the town in which a nationalist majority was denied control of local government by a particularly flagrant gerrymandering of the electoral boundaries. So what comes out of that is the Derry Housing Action Committee. That was one expression of anger in the area. They were occupying the town hall, frustrating local government. Uh, And, you know, people in the south were aware that things were building in Derry. But I think that the shocking reality of this on the day just just blew people away. Uh, How quickly did it change the city or change, I suppose, the atmosphere and what was going on? Sometimes... Things happen around you and you know when you live through them. I've lived through a historic moment. Mm. And I mean, that was definitely one of them. And Bernadette Devlin McAlisky, uh, in the immediate aftermath of it, she says, Derry is a dead city. About one in five men is unemployed and the whole feeling is depressed. But it was electric that day. You could see it on everyone's faces. Excitement or alarm or anger, Derry was alive. You know, it just took the place and it shook it to its very core. And another point that I don't think was really made in the press this week, and it, it probably should have been, was that in that march too, you know, this may have been a city where a Catholic majority were greatly oppressed, but there are many people from Protestant backgrounds in the civil rights movement. You know, the sectarian tension that came with the Troubles Mm. from the following year onwards wasn't really there. That's another thing that's been viewed historically. We see Sinn Féin putting their stamp and the logo on the civil rights movement now as well, in retrospect. It very much came from somewhere else. You know, it came from the students. It came from the grassroots activists. And like you take someone like Betty Sinclair, an amazing woman, born into a Church of Ireland family, Belfast 1910, leading member of the Communist Party in the 30s and 40s, when that was a very powerful movement uh, in Belfast. She's a chairperson of the Civil Rights Association. Ivan Cooper, uh, people remember him as James Nesbitt, portrayed in that 1990s film on Bloody Sunday, from a family, a Protestant family in Killaloo, later an elected MP. 
Uh, and he put it beautifully. You know, he said at one meeting, as the blacks in America are fighting, we must fight Catholics and Protestants together. Robin Cole, formerly of the Young Unionists. You know, if you wanted to bring about meaningful reform, you had to win the support of liberal Protestants. And the civil rights movement was serious about doing that. Uh, and I suppose from the 5th of October, like things did spiral then, didn't and they? It's amazing how quickly things spiral out of control. And I mean, British government policy in Ireland in the 20th century, you could call it a series of unfortunate events. And this is, 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 is one <laughs> chapter in that big book of unfortunate events. January 1969, there's a march from Belfast to Derry, organised by People's Democracy. It was a, a student organisation, came out of Queen's University, Belfast. And uh, at bon- Bontollet Bridge, near to Derry, they're ambushed by a loyalist mob, some of whom are off-duty policemen. It's later revealed in the press. They're armed with clubs and sticks. They're firing projectiles, even bricks. And this time the media are there because this has happened after mm. the rioting in Derry. So the press are all over it. And the Cameron report again says, look, who's to blame for this? They put the blame very much on a certain Dr Ian Paisley. Though he must bear a heavy share of direct responsibility for the disorder and also for inflaming passions and engineering opposition to lawful and what would in all probability otherwise have been peaceful demonstrations. I mean, this is coming from the side of the British state. And not only had the police failed to protect the marchers that day, they actively and undeniably collaborated with those that were attacking them. So the response to that is, right, we've been attacked twice now in three months, up go the barricades. Yeah, when we're looking back now as well, you think of images uh, of some of those civil rights leaders and the marches and Bloody Sunday and the murals mm. on the walls. And those murals now are, are tourists. You, go, are, up and you, yeah. you go up and get your photos taken in front of them. The, obviously all of that though was this an amazing spectacle to people oh, yeah. at the time. The Irish Times, they thunder the front page, 1,500 armed to defend their area. And the barricades, I mean, John Hume is on the streets telling people to take part in civil disobedience. And then comes that iconic, you know, if you're, if you're a photographer, a press photographer, mm. you need that iconic shot. And they get it. The slogan, you are now entering Free Derry, is painted across a gable wall. And if you look at the pictures of January 69, over it, it says, vote McCann. You know, you are now entering Free Derry. And that was a reminder that it was young Derry men and women, people like Eamon McCann, that were central to the story of the civil rights movement and to Radio Free Derry. Well, that brings us back to actually to Eamon, who we heard at the start. Tell us about the, the, this Radio Free Derry. What a life Eamon has had. I mean, Eamon was elected into the Stormont Parliament not too long ago, and he had a short run, but I thought it was wonderful that he made it there at last. Yeah. He'd been shouting about Stormont for so long, and he still has it in him, you know, and so does Bernadette Devlin Michalski. And Bernadette said, she was interviewed by Blind Boy Boat Club last night in Belfast, but she said in the press interview during the week, yeah, you know, I cared about yesterday, but for me it's about today and tomorrow. And for McCann, that's very true as well. And the use of a pirate radio station was central to, I suppose, the story of, of, of Free Derry and to McCann's politics. And one observer journalist who travelled to Derry uh, from across the water said that Radio Free Derry sits neat and portable in a small terrace house, its aerial curled over a crucifix. Now, the transmitter did end up in a house, and we heard that broadcast from Craigan at the start, but it began in a flat uh, and McCann in his memoir says, in the middle of the night, someone arrived at a radio transmitter that was installed in an eight-storey flat in Rossville Street with the aerial on the roof. We began broadcasting, describing ourselves as Radio Free Derry, the voice of liberation. Uh, so what was the broadcasting? The news, well, their version of the news, you know, promoting the idea that the bog side was an autonomous zone, you know, that the police were gone, the barricades were up, and, you know, it built morale. And you could say, you know, it wasn't just speaking for the people, it described itself as the people speaking. And in the South, the media were very interested in this. You know, the Irish press said, the broadcaster told the citizens of Derry in a very determined voice to stay on the streets. There were 10 people, all civil rights workers, in the room for the historic occasion. A makeshift aerial of cooking foil was erected to serve as the small transmitter. That perhaps 
So, so this station, you know, perhaps it, it, it changes the narrative mm. because of what people are hearing about what's happening on the streets. Yeah. Hey, uh, look, and they played as well a bit, as you'd imagine, uh, a bit of music, some rebel songs, and also a little bit of this. The bogside man is the man for me. He's caught recruiting in the RUC. He was the bogside man. Steady on your aim with a petrol bomb. Don't throw it, son, till the peelers come. I am the Bugside Man. To Belfast Town, now the specials came. They looked at the sky and it started to rain with the Britons. Steady on your aim with a petrol bomb. Don't throw it, son, till the peelers come. I am the Bugside Man. It's like equally cute and terrifying. Yeah, Caroline quickly, seven seven years of age. I suppose as things uh, erupt in Derry through the Battle of the Bogside and you know post Bloody Sunday and everything, there are these LPs, you know, being being lit up like the equipment. An American production crew was actually smuggled into the Bogside to make a documentary about life in Derry, mm. and LPs like that were being pumped out. Caroline quickly, seven years of age, there. So you would have heard songs like that playing on these pirate radio stations during the Troubles. But McCann remembers a guy called Tommy McDermott who, quote, believed in the revolutionary potential of underground music and who treated the populace to two hours of the incredible string band <laughs> interspersed with whispered injunctions to love one another and keep cool. Reception was good, the listening audience vast. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you were in here not too long ago talking to me about pirate radio stations in the south and the mm. attempts of the Gardaí to crack down on them. What about in the north? I assume given the fraud atmosphere there was yeah, an attempt. We've yeah, got to get I mean, this guy's off The Gardaí didn't like pirate radio stations in the south they're playing pop music in the 60s and you know yeah. imagine what the uh, the B specials and the post office authorities in the north thought about this and you know how autonomous was, was Free Derry the area it was in I think the problem was not only did they not like the pirate radio station they didn't like everything around it they looked at the bug side and went what has happened here you know they had Free Derry police the community was essentially policing itself if you're not allowing the police past the barricades you have to deal with law and order in your own way you had like you know the Free Derry community bus service everything down to the morning milk was done on a community basis so externally looking in to the, to the, to the police service in the north this was like some kind of variation of communism you know people were taking control of their everyday lives and the station was recognised as an important part of that sense of autonomy and it broadcast through those very heavy days and they were heavy days of January 69 and came back on the air again in August when the Battle of the Bogside erupted. So it was very, very important. Obviously, right, the the police crackdown, which was disastrous and it was brutal and everything, but then you've got the barricades up and you've got this kind of, like this, uh, you know, the phony war almost mm. for a little while, where everything uh, is yeah. kind of tripping along and you've got the those authorities on the outside looking in saying, what has happened and, and what... Uh, you know, how, how do we deal with it? Yeah. Things really don't go did. out of control. And it's a tragic. They? It's a tragic story. I mean, sixty nine brought the, the the split. You know, the provisionals and mm. the and the officials battling for control of the streets. Seventy two was just a horrific year for Derry, and 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 Free Derry was smashed on the thirty first of July seventy two. Thousands of British troops uh, moved in, armoured cars, bulldozers, and took it apart. And that, of course, was the year of Bloody Sunday. And by then. You know, as James Connolly predicted, the North had spiralled into what you could only call a carnival of reaction. And now when you look back at that footage, it all looks so innocent. You know, those hopeful crowds of kind of long haired students, people's democracy banners singing We Shall Overcome on an October day in 1968. And I mean, to end with a question from the start again, Sean O'Hagan in a lovely piece for The Guardian, I mean, he asked the question, when did the troubles begin? Was it when the first stone was thrown or the first shot fired? But certainly 
the story of the North got more tragic and more disastrous from that day on. All right, look, my thanks as always to Donald Fallon uh, for another Hidden Histories, Donald of the Come Here To Me blog, book volume two, which is out now. That's our lot for today. Off the Ball is up next as always. My thanks to Peter Malloy, who's on sound, Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan for their production. Uh, we are talking about Derry. These guys were only kids at the time. They didn't come to fame. Do you know, do you know when to, John Peel yeah? heard this song? He loved it so much. John Peel loved it so much. He played it once and then he said, let's play it again. But we'll play it once. <laughs> we'll play it once. There we are. It's the undertones, Teenage Kicks. Yeah.